Welcome to Riding Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. In recent years, grievances over federal management of public lands in the West have escalated to armed standoffs, occupations of federal facilities, and violence. Then, just last week, while Congress was certifying the Electoral College results of the 2020 presidential election, months of politicized rhetoric about supposed election fraud inspired an attempted insurrection and violent takeover of the U.S. Capitol. There's a common theme in the rhetoric espoused by the people involved in these different movements, that tyrannical government has taken something away from them, access and usage to lands in the West, or electoral control of national affairs. The overlap in membership and rhetoric between these groups is meaningful, and the history of public lands conflicts and grievances in the American West provide essential context. In this month's episode of Writing Westward, we talk with Professor James R. Skillen about these issues, and has recently published a book, This Land is My Land, Rebellion in the West. I'll introduce him and his work in just a moment. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast. Each episode features a conversation with authors, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, academics, or others who write about the North American West. Our goal is not only showcase their work, but to spark curiosity among you, the listeners, to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the people who call it home. If a writer intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation, with me playing the roles of host, producer, sound engineer, and just about everything else, all of which entail tasks for which I have very little training. But I am passionate about the North American West, and all the work is well worth the excuse to read more and to talk to interesting people. At the end of this episode, I will include some more information on me and my scholarship, and on the Red Center, our programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. That's right, we may want to give you money. With all this business out of the way, let's move on to today's conversation. First, I'd like to introduce to you who it is we're talking to and why. James R. Skillen is Associate Professor of Environmental Studies at Calvin University. His new book, This Land is My Land, Rebellion in the West, was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. Building on his previous work on the history of federal land management in the West, Skillen has now turned his eye to understanding the recent politics of land management and how certain Westerners have resisted federal oversight and regulations, as well as how very regional Western debates over grazing permits and local control over land use have melded with national movements against the federal government and increasingly extremist and militant stands against supposed federal tyranny. The growing overlap between those in the West protesting federal land management policies with so-called patriot groups, anti-government militias, extreme conspiracy theorists, and white nationalists makes understanding the historical context of their Western elements essential. Unfortunately, Skillen's book is timely and demands our immediate attention. Professor James Skillen, welcome to Riding Westward. Well, thanks so much for having me. We tried to do this about a week and a half ago at the very beginning of January. I like to try to get the podcast done at the beginning of the month. And I, I had some things come up and we had a reschedule for mid-month. 
but in the interceding uh, days, there's been some some crazy things that have been happening and that I think we'll be able to talk about today uh, with uh, January 6th and the, the riots and insurrection mobs. And so maybe it was providential that we had to postpone. Well, I sometimes as someone who talks about and writes about federal lands, I sometimes think I, my audience is only in the West. And so this happens to be a moment when, yeah, I think what I'm have been writing about is certainly of national relevance. Yeah. We always hope that our work will be nationally relevant, except when it's in unfortunate contexts, right? right? Well, this book, where, where you're trying to make sense of some of these recent conflicts in the West at Bunkerville or Malheur or elsewhere, um, and trying to provide some of the context of the long brewing Western conflicts over public lands, the role of the federal government in managing lands and so forth. And this all builds off of your previous work on the history of the Bureau of Land Management. You had a book referred to it as the nation's largest landlord. Uh, could you start by explaining how that previous work led you to go down this particular avenue for this new book project? Thanks for the question. I, when I started working on federal lands, I was drawn to public lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, it'll seem silly. I was drawn to it mainly because I found so little written about that agency compared to the Forest Service, the Park Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service. Why do you think that is? Well, I think part of that is its complex history, but also that it's the lands it manages uh, are not as easily recognized by the public. So a national park is a contiguous unit with a boundary. It has signs at the front. Uh, it's on Rand McNally atlases. Uh, public lands partly because they're interspersed with state and private lands, uh, they simply aren't seen by the public as units, as places. And so I think it's received less attention from the public for that reason. I think the individual programs that the BLM manages, grazing, mining, recreation, they've received a lot of attention. But I was also drawn to public lands managed by the BLM, because to me, uh, there, there was a more immediate sense of an older history of the West on these lands. And as I interviewed people who had started with the Bureau of Land Management when it was formed in 1946, uh, or maybe started with a predecessor agency in the 30s, the stories I was hearing to me sounded like old Western films. You know, there was, there was still a kind of uh, lawless range, little pockets in the West. And I think that captured my imagination. Uh, after that book, The Nation's Largest Landlord, uh, I wrote a book on federal ecosystem management. And it was, you know, looking at how the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service in particular were working on ecological management and finding that you know, the friction that caused, even the, the phrase ecosystem management, you know, caused enormous political friction. And so I had been spending time around the West in the literature, uh, just paying attention to some of the ways that that language in the 1990s had really um, yeah, cr created conflict throughout the West. And I had been aware certainly of the Sagebrush Rebellion of 1979, uh, but the work in ecosystem management really got me into what I see as the next 
Sagebrush Rebellion, the one after that, that pretty much ran through the 1990s. And so I'd been spending a lot of time with uh, that. Uh, really, this book, the idea for it came uh, during the Bundy Ranch standoff in 2014. And I mentioned this in, in the introduction, having written on the Bureau of Land Management, uh, I was fielding calls from reporters and one reporter who is British, uh, worked for Reuters, lived in New York City. And his first question to me was, Jamie, is this really happening? I, and I, you know, it was mock incredulity, but I, I think I understood. I mean, he's asking, particularly from a place in the East where comparatively land claims are settled, uh, where, you know, there's pretty strong law enforcement presence. Uh, to him, it seemed really like a different world that you could have independent militias uh, staring down federal law enforcement and appearing to win. And I think that really is what many people are probably asking about what happened at the Capitol last Wednesday. You know, did this really happen? When you turned on the news and you saw images of people climbing walls and scaffolding, I mean, basically crawling over the Capitol, it, it really, uh, it's a fair question. Yeah. How could this be happening here? And so it was a similar sense during the Bundy Ranch standoff that I decided that uh, what I wanted to do was try to explain to that reporter to a reading audience, why in a certain way, in a qualified way, what happened at the Bundy Ranch standoff made sense. Why it wasn't shocking if you put it in historical context. Interesting. What we saw at, you know, Bunkerville or later at Malheur, it, it seems like something like out of an old Western movie. It seemed to, to confirm every Western trope and stereotype from dime novels and films and so forth and i don't know if these if people farther east ever think about the west when they do it's probably often in films but maybe when they do they also think yeah but that's that's just films that couldn't it's not really like that it's not really the wild west and they turn on the news and you know what what is going on although you know we did have ruby ridge and waco you know there, there were other moments of somewhat adjacent kinds of events and violence that happened out West. But um, I mean, I mentioned this to, uh, we had Leah Satilli on the podcast oh, yeah. to talk about her long, long form journalism and her podcast, Bundyville. And Which is outstanding. Her, her work is, is really exceptional. Yeah. And I just discovered she has another podcast about um, Oklahoma uh, city bombing, which I, I have on my queue. Uh, but I mentioned to her, I'll, I'll mention to you as well that, uh, my wife was driving uh, from Arizona back here to Utah in 2014 um, with two very, very small children uh, in the car by herself. And she went to the Las Vegas route and calls me up and says, Brendan, look, I'm, I'm stuck in the middle of the desert. There's like a, a traffic jam. Like, what is going on? Is there a wreck? Uh, so I got online and was Googling around and the kids had to go to the bathroom, you know, and Finally, after a little bit, I, a little news item popped up and I, I called and I said, I think there's like an armed standoff uh, of like some militia group or something. And she was like, what? And sure enough, you know, 
she was stuck for a couple hours and drove through and drove by these guys with assault rifles and sniper rifles and and she was the same thing is this really happening is is this real um so i think that's great that we all had this moment of incredulity and but if you understand the history and the context of what's going on it's not that unbelievable and i think by the end of our conversation i think we're going to return to what happened uh on january 6th and uh, it's maybe not as unbelievable as we as you might think as well. Right. Let's get into some of this context and and dig through the history of of these conflicts between the BLM and, and various groups. Uh, you, in your book, you move us through a number of, of phases of discontent: the Sage Rush Brush Rebellion of the late '70s, early '80s, the '90s, where things are a little less. A cohesive, uh, but it did become increasingly more nationally, even corporate in a way, in some of the movements. Um, and then the Patriot Rebellion movement, you call it, uh, during the Obama era. What I found interesting, I wanted to start talking about, and we'll move maybe through all those phases as well, but through all of them, they all seem to invoke certain ideas about Western identity, about what it meant to be a true Westerner, and how that played into who should control um, these lands. Um, so I'm curious if you could offer us some thoughts about what what do you see as some of the main through lines? What what are these character points or attributes or parts of Western identity, Western authenticity that all these movements have kind of woven into their rhetoric as a way to justify and give them authority in in, in proclaiming yeah, who who should control lands and so forth. I would like to take that question in in particular in one uh, take one angle which is thinking about ways in which uh a western identity has in fact been appropriated nationally uh within certain conservative rhetoric and imagery and i think that and i think this is also key to understanding let's say the difference between ruby ridge and uh bunkerville uh so if you look at Ruby Ridge, you have, uh, you know, someone some, somewhat reclusive living in a cabin in Idaho, um, understood publicly as a white separatist, uh, understood as a marginal figure, uh, you know, even in among people who had at the time real discomfort with federal authority. Uh, and that didn't mobilize national support the way the Bundys did at Bunkerville. And, and I do think that part of what we see is the degree to which as uh, a certain conservative narrative built over the last 40 years, and as some conservatives were casting about for icons or symbols of conservative America, of you know, traditional America, of a nostalgic age in American identity. Uh, the Bundys sort of stepped right up at a moment when uh, th that image was incredibly powerful. So it's the image, and you even saw this with Ammon Bundy, uh, images I saw of him when he lived in Phoenix uh, were different than the images of him at Malheur Refuge. There's a certain costuming that goes on yeah. when uh, in, in different contexts. Yeah. And I think I, 
I don't want to oversimplify it, but this really is the icon of the American cowboy. Never mind that they're ranchers and not necessarily cowboys, but the, the American cowboy uh, that, in fact, I mentioned in the book, there was a resolution in Congress in 2005 to declare a day of the American cowboy. And the, the language of that resolution was all about how the cowboy embodies all that is good about America, honor, tradition, commitment, hard work, uh, individual responsibility, etc. And when I read a lot of the material about Cliven Bundy in particular, there are a couple of kind of hagiographies celebrating him. And, you know, one of the things you see is you hear phrases like, um, you know, he loves the Bundys love and respect their women. Uh, the Bundys are hardworking. The Bundys are, and the list goes on, and, it, and it's basically reinforcing a certain idea of patriarchy, a certain idea of uh, work and responsibility, a certain idea of independence, whether or not, you know, a public lands rancher could ever be fully independent. Um, and so I think that really part of this story is the story of people all across the country uh, adopting or co-opting a particular Western identity and then holding it up as a symbol of what's been lost in this country. And that's why too, if you listen to, you know, during the Bunkerville standoff, you know, I, one of my first questions is why does Sean Hannity care? <laughs> right. I mean, here's a New York Fox news personality. Uh, I'm fairly confident he has no particular interest in ranching or public lands. You know, why is it that he would take such an interest? Well, it, it has to do with the fact that for conservatives, uh, yeah, the, the Bundys and that Western identity of the cowboy really served a purpose um, to remember a, for, a forgotten past, however mythical it really was. Or so is. this mythical identity of the cowboy, you know, it evolved and, you know, Owen Wister and others and movies created this. I mean, if you read through kind of, cultural studies about film and Western films, there's a lot of discussion about how the cowboy, you know, stood in for America and represented, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of things in those films and books. And so you can see places where the Bundys or others then, uh, they, they are ranchers, but they specifically try to invoke uh, what that cowboy mythology meant. And then more broadly, people nationally then latch onto that and hold on to that. I talk to students about this sometimes, you know, when we have Ronald Reagan kind of costuming himself, you know, as this cowboy, right? He was invoking, again, the certain imagery, but it's this imagery of that the that true Westerners, which are the true Americans, um, are rugged individuals who um, tamed the land, uh, you know, savage lands. They're independent of others, independent of the government. And that's what true American identity is. But underlying that all is the fact that land users in the West, especially uh, in these more marginal areas of the rural West, are perhaps the most dependent people that are in the nation in terms of being dependent on federal support. And the uh, white settling and peopling of the West was one, one of the most long-term expensive federal projects in the nation's history. That's the grand irony is this narrative that these rugged individuals came out 
and conquered the land and the Bundys, for instance, are carrying on that legacy. When in fact, you know, railroads, the, the military uh, building forts and confining Indians to reservations uh, or killing them, all these things. Uh, and then this huge uh, federal transfer to private ownership through the Homestead Act and Desert Land Act, all the other things, it was all a federal project. It, it was not rugged individuals, you know, braving the, the wild on their own. Right. Kind of this grand, grand irony. And I think the second, um, I realized what I said a minute ago was more circular in answering your question. But I think that I can say more directly, the other thread that I see through these rebellions is the thread of American civil religion. Um, what all of the people, whether it's, you know, the Sagebrush Rebellion rebels of 1979, but certainly through the Patriot Rebellion that we see today, it is uh, people who say they stand for America as God's nation, an exceptional nation. If you're Ammon Bundy, uh, it is about God inspiring the Constitution and putting in that document inalienable rights from God. And uh, so I think, too, one of those symbols is uh, in these rebellions, it's people who are saying, I'm not just fighting for my personal interests, right, material interests in land. And I'm not even just fighting for a Western identity. I'm fighting for what's truly American. And, you know, if you go back into. And fighting for God, I mean, the stakes just get higher and higher certainly. and higher. It's remarkable. And you hear, I mean, I think what was helpful in some cases with Ammon Bundy is he was articulate about this. I mean, he actually could draw on a theology, however sort of marginal or out of the mainstream. He was drawing on people like Cleon Skosin uh, very heavily. And, uh, you know, he had a, a pretty well-formed political theology. Uh, and I would say, too, that this is where uh, we see both kind of Mormons and evangelicals uh, being some of the, the real energy in this movement today. Uh, and it, it, it's, it all kind of circles around this notion of this American civil religious notion that we are protecting God's country against the infidels or the pagans or, so this really is something that is of cosmic significance, at least in the rhetoric. It is not merely about, right, land rights or, you know, cows or wildlife refuges. Uh, because, you know, what else would be so important that you would be able to draw, if you're Ammon Bundy, you'd be able to draw people from New Hampshire, from Kansas, who are all gonna show up and appear to be willing to kill and die for the constitution. Well, well, that cause has to be something pretty significant. And even participating in the cause is what gives, I think, you know, some of Bundy's followers that sense of purpose and identity. How do they know their cause is important? Because they're willing to kill and die for it. Um, it really does become quite circular though, yeah. <laughs> because we'd have to ask the question, is it a cause appropriate to kill and die for? Um, but it sort of is self, a self-reinforcing uh, sense of purpose. I also think the fact, you know, with the Bundys in particular, that it was playing out over this desert landscape that 
to most people has no real monetary value. So they, all the other considerations, you know, of, well, is, is this, are these people just trying to get rich? Are these people, you know, is there some real important resource that they're fighting over? That's their ulterior motive. They're really, for most people in their view, there wasn't anything else. And so what they were fighting for was principle. They were right. fighting for principles, not for actual uh, you know, right. material gain, which again kind of elevates the sanctity of the movement and the rhetoric. Well, maybe we should kind of go through some of these these time periods and maybe starting with the Sagebrush uh, Rebellion. Walk us through what that movement was in the late 70s, early 80s, because I think there'll be a lot of keywords and things that make people's ears perk up. Like there's a lot that we will recognize from more recent things in, sure. in that Sage Rush Rebellion. So what was it? What was it in reaction to? And how did it kind of play out and then fizzle out by the early 80s? There's historian Richard White has this, this wonderful phrase. Uh, he, he said that he describes kind of federal government as if you think back to the 19th century first two-thirds of the 20th century. So the federal government was like an itchy wool sweater. It might be uncomfortable, but if it's the only thing you have to keep you warm, then, then you're going to wear it. And uh, so for much of that, the development and the white settling of the West, there certainly were resentments about the role of the federal government, that it was dictating the terms of land use. And yet the federal government was investing so much money, as you point out, it was making that settlement possible. So there was a kind of uncomfortable, maybe alliance between Westerners and Eastern politicians. Uh, what really happens is that in the 1960s and 1970s, there is a sea shift in the way that federal lands are viewed and managed in the West. And in fact, uh, the Sagebrush Rebellion has almost nothing to do with the more iconic federal lands like Yosemite National Park or Yellowstone. The Sagebrush Rebellion builds because in the 1960s and 1970s, it becomes clear that public lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management and to a lesser extent, the Forest Service are not going to be privatized. They're not going to be given to the states and that some form of more professional management is necessary. The BLM, in fact, on its own, was sort of building these professional capacities to manage the public lands pretty much the same way the Forest Service was managing the national forests for multiple more, uses. More oversight, more scientific yeah. inquiry, kind of, uh, and a more robust bu bureaucracy to do it. Certainly. And in fact, uh, rather than what one early grazing official called home rule on the range, that is deferring to public land users as to the best use of the land, BLM employees were making those decisions based on their own training at universities and their own professional judgment. Um, and then that all through a series of uh, government studies and legislation, I would say the inflection point is when Congress passed the Federal Land Policy and Management Act in 1976. This was the act that for the first time said public lands would be in permanent federal ownership. Uh, just as controversially, it extended the Wilderness Act to public lands managed by BLM. And uh, at the same time, 
the BLM was exercising the authority that Congress was basically recognizing in that act, as opposed to creating whole cloth. And uh, so what you see are Westerners who are saying, we are losing control of lands that we have, you know, in a Lockean sense, we've mixed our blood and sweat with these lands, they're ours. And now all of a sudden, we're being told what to do with them. Uh, on top of that, you have the Carter administration coming in and the Carter administration that made plenty of enemies beyond land issues with water issues in the West. And so the Carter administration was really leaning more heavily on some of the environmental laws like the Endangered Species Act, National Environmental Policy Act. And all of those things came together um, to create this sense of that a true Westerner was being disenfranchised by powers outside of the West or certainly out beyond their control. By Eastern and, bureaucrats, right? There you go. And probably urban. Eastern, urban Eastern bureaucrats and yeah. ivory tower academics who right. came up with these scientific studies and so forth. Right. While they're out there for the last four generations, yeah, mixing their blood and yeah. sweat with the dirt. And I mean, and there's, you, you can be empathetic with that. Oh, absolutely. These are families who for generations have, many of them scratched out very marginal lives on very marginal lands. Um, some of them did quite well, but some of them, you know, it was, it's hard work. And now the rug's being pulled out from under them. That's, that's kind of the feeling. Uh, Certainly. Yeah. And in 1979, uh, that Nevada was the state that you sort of see as launching the Sage Rush Rebellion. And the state legislature introduced or passed legislation uh, demanding that the federal government turn federal lands over to the states. Now, Sounds here's familiar. what's here's what's hard to imagine, though, from today's perspective. Um, Eighty-five percent of the state legislature co-sponsored that bill, and what's just important, it was entirely bipartisan. Democrats and Republicans were not quite equal, but Democrats and Republicans were both supporting this effort to take back federal lands. And part of what you see there is that sense of identity of being a Nevadan, being a Westerner was so much more powerful and so much more important than the party identity. And so you ended up then with this grand statement that these lands are our lands as Westerners. And pretty soon uh, Utah followed you know, other states followed. And, but what's important to recognize, particularly as we think about what's happening today, is almost in all of what happened during the Sagebrush Rebellion was what I would think of as mainstream political activity. It was state legislatures passing laws, it was people lobbying Congress, there were demonstrations, there were protests, uh, people happened to have guns. But, but this was not, uh, and at that time, too, if you look at militias, Militias in the 1970s were still largely, you know, completely marginal fringe groups, explicitly racist. Their project was building, you know, Aryan utopias. So what you really saw was Westerners concerned with material issues with federal lands, uh, banding together in a bipartisan fashion to demand control over that land. And what President Reagan did in running as a sagebrush rebel is, you know, he came in, he spoke specifically to them and said, uh, I'm not going to give the land to the states. We're not going to privatize the land, though that was attempted. He says, but you know what? 
I will once again defer to you. Uh, Secretary of Interior James Watt said he, he went and talked with the state governors and he said, uh, it's, this land is yours, take it. You know, I'll, I'll do what you want. And in, that, in doing that, Reagan simultaneously diffused the Sagebrush Rebellion. I mean, what was there to be angry about if, uh, no, the states didn't take title to the land, but they received what they'd really asked for, which is uh, greater control. But, but Reagan did something that's even more important when we think about what's happening today, which is Reagan understood the, the common grievance that a rancher in Nevada had that, um, let's say, a conservative Christian in the Southeast had, or uh, a white supremacist in the Southeast, or business owners in the Northeast. What he recognized is the grievance was government. And uh, Reagan then helped connect and unite what had been these sort of regional issues, school seg or integration, um, certainly uh, workplace safety was more Eastern than Western, but all of these ways in which people saw the federal government meddling in their lives. And Reagan said, you know what? We're all in this together. We have the same problem, different details, but the same problem. And so even though uh, the Sagebrush Rebellion was, you know, pretty much dissolved by Reagan's action, it also was setting up um, a coalition so that the next time these issues erupted over federal lands, Westerners wouldn't be alone in, yeah. in, in or at least the issues wouldn't just be about lands and resources. They would then be inextricably linked to a whole set of grievances about the role of the federal government in American life. Hmm. And this is really part of the genius of what Reagan did in the rise of the new right was building these coalitions, right? Taking yeah. even the portions of the Sage Rush Rebellion, which, which were kind of anti-Carter political theater mm -hmm. in a way, but then uniting them around principles that weren't just about land, yeah, about these broader issues. And that in the book, I, I described the Sagebrush Rebellion as a Tenth Amendment uh, rebellion. So the Tenth Amendment, which upholds the, the broader powers of the states over and against the federal government, that really was what the Sagebrush Rebellion was about. But as you're describing, the coalition that forms is then bringing together people who are, so by the 1990s, the rebellion is you know, at the very least, a first, second, fifth, and 10th amendment rebellion. It was about religious expression. I mean, it was about everything from prayer in schools and abortion to second amendment gun rights to fifth amendment, uh, particularly private property rights. Um, and so, yeah, it basically became a bill of rights revolution as yeah. opposed to a state's rights revolution. Yeah, it's kind of wrapped up in the, some of the, the broader culture war Right. issues right, right. Um, so this is what you explained starts playing out through the 80s and 90s where we have basically what was a, a regional conflict and it becomes instead a regional front in this broader national coalition of discontent that's that's challenging federal authority how does that then change what was the sagebrush rebellion or these broader movements of western discontent how does it change uh, their character as they become less grassroots, more tied with national organizations, national concerns, national funding and subsidizing. Um, 
How does that change the nature of Western opposition or challenge to federal authority uh, over lands? Boy, there's so many things I want to say. So much could be said. Uh, what I want to emphasize is I think what happened during the 1970s and 1980s uh, created a whole new foundation and infrastructure for what happens in the 90s. There, there's an outstanding book by Jefferson Decker, The Other Rights Revolution, Conservative Lawyers and the Remaking of American Government. And what he argues pretty convincingly is that in the late 70s, early 80s, you see uh, a concerted and organized conservative effort to build uh, what conservative strategist Paul Weyrich called uh, a weapons system that would be capable of counteracting the progressive or liberal rights revolution of the 50s and 60s. Uh, he says, you know, it did a number of things, whereas, you know, the progressive rights revolution was about showing the constitution protect the rights of minorities, of women. Uh, you know, the new rights revolution he writes about was really about protecting economic interests, about protecting corporations, about protecting property, about uh, protecting conservative interests. And so what he describes, and I then describe as it relates to federal lands, is this explosion in the late 70s, early 80s of conservative think tanks, foundations, lobbying groups, uh, political action committees. Really, if you think about, uh, my guess is almost any conservative think tank or action group you think of, uh, most of them were formed in about 1978 to 1982. And whether that's, you know, uh, conservative public interest law firms, uh, whether it's uh, ALEC, uh, is collection of states, whether it's, you know, many of them were formed in that period. Um, and so by the time we get to the 1990s, when public land or federal land issues became contentious, it was no longer just the public land users that were going to enter the fray, that were going to go to Washington or were going to demonstrate. You now had the James Watts uh, of conservative law, um, you know, you had a variety of these groups that were now going to ensure that that coalition built in the 70s and 80s came together on behalf of Western public land users. And what you see, the way that that really changes the language is that in the 1990s, uh, the main focus is no longer states' rights. The main focus is private property rights and individual rights, because those are the issues that every American can be concerned about. So uh, even though it dealt with public lands, it was really people claiming that their private property rights to public lands had been taken. It was people complaining that, you know, federal oversight was restricting their freedom of expression and gun rights. Um, and it was uh, also, you know, this, this is when you have the kind of county supremacy movement, uh, but it, it is a, of a different character. And I think none of that could happen. And it certainly could have been sustained over the entire decade just by the Westerners who used public lands. It could only be sustained if it had the kind of institutional infrastructure 
that was carrying the message to Washington that was, you know, where leaders were traveling the West speaking, rallying people. Um, and so it was in the 1990s, a very different, um, I would say simply a different coalition yeah. that was, was involved. This is some, something of a paradox then, isn't it? Because so during the 80s and 90s, we have in a way a mainstreaming of these Western grievances where, or the Western grievances are put into a context of these broader national mainstream political debates. But it's also during that same time period where uh, extremist groups, militias also become enmeshed with this, with these movements. So on the, on the one hand, Western land grievances are becoming mainstreamed, but at the same time, entering into that stream are much more extremist groups, which set up uh, what you described kind of as we get into the Obama era as the Patriot Rebellion, which is very different in flavor. So I, I just find it interesting that at the same time we have a mainstreaming of this and a, a radicalization of it in a way, or a broad acceptance of more radical elements within it. And I think, I think that's exactly right. I think what you, you can't separate that too uh, from the articulation of the threat that people I'll call the rebels, but I mean, uh, conservatives protesting the federal government, the way they articulated the threat against them, it was not that the federal government was limiting grazing permits. By the 1990s, part of that radicalization is the broader acceptance of conspiracy theories that the new world order, the UN, was going to destroy America, that Russians were sending troops in, that FEMA was beginning to you know, build internment camps for Americans. And uh, we don't have time to discuss this a lot, but I think it is critical to see that none of this could have happened without changes in communication technology, right? Yeah. If you look at the 70s, people were sending out newsletters. Um, you know, there's a limit to that reach, but you do begin uh, with changing of the law that used to require um, balance in news coverage, the rise of cable news networks, the rise of early kind of bulletin boards in the internet that really now allow people to gather together around conspiracies that are so dark and that of course your response would be more radical. I mean, it's different if you think, you know, it's one thing if you think you're going to have 10% fewer uh, animal unit months of grazing next year than if you believe the Russians are going to come and take your children. And uh, that has only continued. And that certainly is what we saw, you know, last week, where if you listen to the, the conspiracy theories and you listen to QAnon, I mean, look, if I believed the things that I've heard from the kind of QAnon realm, uh, yeah, I think I'd be radicalized too. Um, yeah. And I don't think everyone actually believes them. I think many people mobilize it. But I do think, again, it's, it's radicalization, not so much for its own sake, but by constructing an enemy that is so much more dangerous that it demands some kind of greater response. And that given the fact that it is defending against federal tyranny across the board, you know, and, and again, this is where gun rights become really critical and where, you know, guns become one of uh, a central, the central political symbols. 
Um, you know, it's the, the number of, you've probably seen the God guns and Trump signs and flags and memes, but you know, where the, and the way the NRA would say it is that's because the second amendment is the one that protects all the others. So you do begin to hear more rhetoric. Um, and, and I'll add one other thing, more rhetoric about the NRA's relatively new insurrectionist interpretation of the second amendment, that it's not just that you should be able to keep and bear arms for militia service against foreign invaders. It's that you need to keep and bear arms so that you can kill federal tyrants when they come against you. And, you know, that's now been 30 years of that constant drum of warning you that you may have to defend yourself against the federal government. And you may have to defend yourself violently, not aggressively. You're told it will be defensive, but because the federal government is going to come at you in a way that will require violent defensive force. Yeah, that's a more long lasting justification for a lot of these feelings, you know, whereas the Sage of Usher Billing, you know, was a, re a response to some very specific events, right? Mm -hmm. New federal legislation, um, new uh, regulations by the BLM. These are really big, broad ideas, yeah, about federal tyranny. And that is an enemy that you can churn out rhetoric on for for decades and sure. gain followers and right. use as a platform for all kinds of things instead of it just being a flashpoint being a regional western thing it's it's long lasting um which kind of you know which brings us to you know and we've kind of already talked about them you know bunkerville and the bundys in 2014 occupation of the malheur um wildlife refuge in oregon in 2016 and all of that building and blending with these very uh, other very extreme things. And we have some very uncomfortable bedfellows at times, you know, people sure. that are you know, opposed to federal control on very kind of constitutional grounds, uh, sitting next to violent militia extremists who want to, uh, well, uh, and white supremacists and others, this very strange coalition. Um, you write that this, also during the Obama era, you write that this kind of melds with the, with the Tea Party movement and transforms, you know, Western grievances over you know, roads and wilderness or resources um, into what you call, um, you write, into a new and more dangerous rebellion uh, waged by armed militias and vigilante groups. You, you entitled your conclusion to the book, Wither the Next Rebellion. <laughs> and books take a while to you know go through copy editing and publishing and everything to get it out on shelves so you wrote that a while ago but maybe we should turn uh, for this last little bit and talk about what happened last week um, on January 6th and I did not see a lot of invocation of western of kind of that that western cowboy identity um like we did explicitly with the bundys and others but in what happened last week where do you see the the echoes the the ghosts of all these previous movements bubbling up maybe less 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 explicitly but where, where do you see it and what's happened over the past few weeks 
I will say in the last week, I've read a number of pieces on this uh, where I think people are trying to understand a linkage in one direction from Western, you know, the Bundy standoff kind of activity to what happened at the Capitol. And like what in, we've been, I think High Country News had a piece. Yeah. And, and it's not that uh, I'm not criticizing that, but I think what we've been talking about is that almost treats as, as if it grew out of the West or, or you know, that it was the, the Western rebellion that caused what we saw at the Capitol. What hasn't gotten enough attention is the other direction. That is how other forms of radical and extreme agenda, extremist agendas, really in the last 10 years have propped up uh, Western public land disputes. So I already mentioned, you know, when you have people from all over the country rushing to the Bundy side in Bunkerville and Malheur, um, not because they care about federal lands, but because this is their cause, you realize that the Bundys could not have succeeded in what they did without that support and push from across the nation. Uh, the other thing, and I want to still focus on Ammon Bundy for a moment, you know, if you've tracked his activities, including uh, getting arrested twice at the Idaho State Capitol, and there was one beautiful image of him being wheeled out in a comfortable office chair, which seemed to me to belie the, the rhetoric of a, a violent, tyrannical government. I, but, I said that you know, to my wife. I showed her this picture and it kind of explained <laughs> the con. I think he's handcuffed to this rolling office chair. And yeah. I said, that's, that's the image. There's just so, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> But I think that the, um, his work, you know, since he's moved to Idaho has had very little to do with federal lands. You know, if you think about what he's been protesting, it has mainly to do with, you know, COVID-19 mitigation gave him the, the focus of his ire against the federal government. So he's been mobilizing people not around federal land issues, but just against government overreach broadly construed. And so I think if when I look at what happened at the Capitol, it is entirely of a piece. As you say, the costumes were slightly different. Um, what you saw were more fatigues, you know, more camo, uh, more military symbols. You also saw, and this is pervasive throughout the West, um, you know, a lot of symbols of the American Revolution, you know, 1776. This is the new revolution. Um, so in that sense, it really is, I, I wouldn't see just talk about a connection, I would say it's, it's, it's become the same movement. It's just attacking different symbols of federal authority, whether that symbol is a national wildlife refuge or, you know, almost the ultimate symbol of federal authority, the Capitol. What I would say is simply the emboldening and, you know, the degree of this is remarkable. There are two things I want to add about uh, this about what happened to the Capitol that are critically important. And the, the first is uh, columnist Gary Wills uh, once referred to people in the 90s, the, the rebels in the 90s as constitutional anti-governmentalists, which is just a beautiful mouthful. Um, so what is it that would make one utterly faithful to the constitution and yet entirely against the government it creates? What is it within this movement that makes it pro-military and police and yet anti-government that directs those forces? And one of the key things we have to see is the, the element of popular constitutionalism. 
So if you are to say that you are there to defend the Constitution, yes, indeed, to potentially die for the Constitution, the next question someone should ask is, well, who gets to decide what it means? What, what interpretation of the Constitution are you dying for? And part of what has come out of um, a lot of right-wing sources, mainstream like Glenn Beck, when he was on Fox News and others, is this notion that ultimately it's the people that decide what the Constitution means. It is not the courts. It certainly is not the executive branch or the legislative branch. We, the people, decide what the Constitution means. So it's a kind of constitutional, uh, it's populism and fundamentalism. It, it says simultaneously that the Constitution doesn't need any interpretation. Its meaning is entirely obvious. And that I, as an American citizen, have the final authority to determine what it means. Well, uh, you know, when you look at what happened at the Capitol um, and you wonder, well, how could these people be describing themselves as patriots storming the halls? Well, again, they're saying we're here for the, the real Constitution, not the meaning that's been perverted by the judiciary and by the elites. Um, it's what any American who loves this country knows that the Constitution means. And I think that that has uh, made, I won't even call it a movement, it's, it's made the, the dynamics we see today more volatile. Because you ask, who is it that will help us create a common understanding of this Constitution? It certainly isn't going to be Twitter or Facebook. Um, so how will we forge, uh, yeah, a, a common uh, interpretation of what this authority that's supposed to be a governing, you know, all of American government and aspects of our society, um, what that really means? You write towards the end about, um, about Trump, and I'm seeing kind of some new connections here about how he kind of built some of his coalition and where it's led us, you say that he appealed to Americans who felt that their country had been stolen from them. And I'm thinking now about, you know, back, back to that sagebrush rebellion and others who, that was their grievance, their country more uh, physically in terms like that their land and their access and use of land had been taken from them, stolen from them by a tyrannical government. And these more recent movements today are often about people feeling that uh, that their voice in defining how the Constitution is interpreted has been stolen from them, right? Mm -hmm. There are still people uh, that are determining these things and are running the country, but it's not their people. It's not the right people. Their voice has been been silenced, um, which again, uh, which is maybe why this Western land grievance set of movements so organically and naturally was integrated into these broader things. Um, maybe that's why Reagan so obviously saw the imagery he could use and the commonality of these grievances that he could uh, really tap into and use to build coalitions because they really are, they dovetail so perfectly. Yeah, I think, you know, when I think about uh, the, the coalition today, um, you know, any sort of summary commentary on the movement that led to storming the Capitol is going to be insufficient and, in fact, in some sense, counterproductive because simplifying it is 
uh, going to be really challenging. I mean, I, I talk with my students um, about how, you know, Smokey the Bear gets a bumper sticker that says only you can stop fire. What you have room for in a bumper sticker is fire's bad. What Smokey really wants to tell us is some fire's bad. <laughs> some fire's good. There isn't room on a bumper sticker for that nuance. And I think part of one of the things I really want to emphasize in talking about coalitions is one of the things Trump helped make public were the explicitly racist elements of American conservatism. But one has to be careful because just because, you know, white nationalists are part of the coalition doesn't mean everyone in the coalition shares those particular values. And where you have to, what, what will hold them together though, are only then the broad threats that we share in common, right? And, um, and I think where I'm a little bit hopeful with uh, public lands in this moment is, uh, I'm not Pollyannish and we're not just gonna hold hands and you know, gather around the table and, you know, rediscover America. But what some of the public lands do is they give us something concrete to talk about. They, they give us something physical, measurable, limited, um, so that if we can find places where uh, there is something specific enough to address, you know, will this help us? And there are other areas of society, but I think in the West, where this might be able to keep us from, you know, so globalizing this idea of a threat against us that it becomes too amorphous to even address, but it becomes precisely amorphous enough to harness every grievance imaginable. And um, boil over it, in yeah. really terrifying ways. One of the things I can add just one, one other thing here. Um, when we think about the kind of culture wars, the two Americas, and, you know, I'll add the caveat, it's not that simple, <laughs> but uh, I, I co-authored a piece somewhere else, um, actually with my father, who's a, a political scientist. And as we were listening to some of these, um, some, some of this language and some of this uh, narrative, um, you know, he, he gave me language in, in this article that was really helpful. He, we talked about how um, within the United States, there are two Exodus stories. So if, if you're familiar with the story of Israel's Exodus out of Egypt um, and how that Exodus leads to the founding of a new nation and that one Exodus story, which is really the one, the Bundys, um, white nationalists, you know, certain federal land conservatives, what they hold on to is an Exodus story that is really about the United States as a people, and it was white European Americans who were enslaved by Egypt. Uh, the Egypt here was Britain. And through a revolution, they came out from bondage. They entered this promised land. And what made them free was escaping the bondage of a powerful government. And so uh, I think within that, what unites many in the, uh, the Trump supporters is this notion that we have, by accepting government expansion over the last century, you know, we've basically chosen to go back into bondage and we have to once again, we have to reenact the, con the revolution, we have to reenact our exodus, 
so that we can once again establish the sort of true America. And, you know, that's a narrative that works for the people in 1776 who had power. For the people in 1776 who gained power by throwing off the shackles of Britain. But there's an entire uh, America that, you know, if you think about Native Americans, African Americans, um, in, in many ways, women, whose their freedom from oppression involved a powerful federal government. It involved the government forcing school desegregation, Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Suffrage Act. And so this other narrative, it's too simple to say, you know, Democrats want big government, Republicans want little government. That's not helpful, but it is helpful to see that freedom for some Americans has been provided by government. And so we are going to be divided if government itself can be simultaneously such different symbols, a symbol of freedom and the symbol of bondage, just it means different things to different people. And yeah, we're, we're going to have a tough time, you know, finding ways to talk about that constructively. You say that you're hopeful that if we can bring some of these debates back to something concrete, like, like, you know, actual Western lands, um, there might be, that might be a, a safer play playing field for, for debates to be had about some bigger issues. Do you see there, do you think there's a future where Western land grievance can disentangle itself from these just global national, right? The government is a tyrant. The government is what gave me freedom. These divides, is there a way that these Western issues um, can disentangle themselves, can can carve out that space to have a debate, like a very productive and often a needed, a, a necessary debate that we need to have about how do we manage lands and public land use? How do we now begin those conversations without getting them dragged into these other huge movements that just have so much baggage and so much unproductive uh, power. Yeah, I don't, I really don't see a path for, for what you're describing um, broadly. In other words, that we have an entirely new or, or a real transformation um, at a national level uh, because for all kinds of reasons, not least of which, which we haven't talked about is money. <laughs> In politics, and um, so I, I don't. I'm not hopeful at all that um, Western lands are going to produce nationally a new politics. What I am hopeful is that Western uh, lands, public lands, can provide examples of better politics. So in other parts of the country, those examples might come from other things, whether it's education or you know, pick an area, but where in uh, the West, public lands might be those places that we point to and say, hey, look at how we work together. And one of the possibilities we have, I think, uh, right now, and I'm an optimist, so you can dismiss this, <laughs> but I mean, if there's one issue that I think we should really focus on with this kind of hope, it's fire in the West. Um, it, is all of us, right? yeah, it is simultaneously divisive, 
right? It's simultaneously divisive because some people blame environmental laws, some people, but, but the reality is it's something that it, that um, can never be made fully ideological. As you say, we all, it affects us all. And, um, and you realize that uh, this is where I still remember, um, you know, Stephen Pine's great book, you know, he talks about the four ways to approach fire and that uh, the problem isn't that one of them's wrong. The problem is one of them is incomplete. And so is there an opportunity where we say, yes, you know, maybe, maybe environmentalists could give a little bit on how long it takes to do an environmental impact statement after a, a burn, not, not across the board, but here with this fire, that's, you know, and where, um, but, but I do think that may be where we could look and see some real, um, again, I'm not optimistic it'll grow and, and become the new politics, but where I think people could gain a little bit of hope saying other ways of doing politics are possible. And, um, and that is something that, boy, yeah, if you want, if you want a common, uh, common concern, uh, fire, it's hard to find one that's, you know, better than fire in particularly vulnerable areas of the West. So, yeah, I'm optimistic, but in a, in a localized <laughs> sort of way, but look, we're going to need that. And the one thing I want to say too, is um, I, you know, whenever I get really discouraged, because there are a lot of reasons to be discouraged right now, um, you know, I do look, not surprisingly, I look at history and, you know, I look at some of the other things, the, the other moments in American history that surely must have seemed impossible. I mean, you know, abolition, um, even something, there was a great book um, uh, on climate change where one of the other examples was um, smoking. You know, no one, if you're in the 50s, no one's going to get Americans to stop smoking. Well, we largely have, and it's not because someone had the solution. It's that, you know, a number of different streams came together to change public attitudes. So I, I sort of take some hope too from, from history that says we might not see the path now. In fact, I don't. Um, but, uh, you know, I certainly don't see all the paths. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that at the end of the day, um, enough of us are going to look at the situation now and say, um, if we keep going, everybody loses and say, we have to find different ways of doing politics, whether it's about federal lands, uh, states' rights, or, you know, national politics. Well, here's to hoping the West can be a shining example, a city on the hill. Whoa, whoa, uh, whoa. No, no. Oh, wait, no, I'm, I'm introducing too much loaded imagery now. I, I do like that. That's hopeful. And um, hopefully we can see some of that in future years. Um, well, I appreciate your time. Um, I, I really appreciate this book. Um, I'm sorry that it has taken on new relevance and significance, but um, there's a lot here that we can learn from. So thank you for your, your dedication to this, this work. Thanks again for having me. And it was great talking with you. All right. Take care, Jamie. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for this month. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll subscribe. 
Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates, leave comments, and communicate with me. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We are an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understanding of the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream. We have an annual funding cycle with awards, grants, fellowships, in categories that nearly anyone researching and working on the region from nearly any disciplinary approach or towards nearly any kind of final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D center.byu.edu. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson. That's Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, just about everything else, so you can direct praise or critique my way. I'm the author and editor of a number of books uh, and other studies on the West, Borderlands, Native Peoples, Genocide Studies, Religion, and the Environment. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or just about anything else, head to bwrensink.org. That's B-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K.org. Or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind.